This clearly is a God who is not attached to one country because he existed long before countries. A God who rules the universe because he created the universe. The name Ivri Hebrew thus connotes one who, believing in this God, asserts that no place on earth is devoid of his presence and providence. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 184, The Fugitive, Biblical Edition. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. It is on the Sabbath before Yom Kippur that rabbis traditionally deliver a Shabbat Shuvah Drasha, a lecture pertaining to some topic relevant to the forthcoming Day of Days. And given my penchant for puns, I was most proud of a lecture one year on the book of Jonah, which I titled, Jonah, Prince of Wales. The title notwithstanding, it is this prophet's story that has become more associated with the Day of Atonement than any other biblical book because it is read in its entirety on the afternoon of Yom Kippur. But why? Why is it read? The obvious answer is that it is a tale of warning, repentance, atonement, and forgiveness. And while this is certainly part of the explanation, there are in fact so many other prophetic passages that focus on these themes, and which could so easily have been read instead. Why then, Jonah? I will argue today that while the second part of Jonah is indeed all about repentance of a people living far away in Assyria, a story we will later discuss, the book's first section teaches us all about ourselves, and that while the book's conclusion informs us about the power of repentance, the book's beginning says something critical about what it means to be a Jew. The book begins with a divine charge to Yonah ben Amittai, or Jonah, who appears once in the book of Kings as a protege of the prophet Elisha. Jonah is commanded by God to journey to Nineveh in Assyria and inform that city that its sinfulness will bring its doom. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah, however, does not want to deliver this message, and we will discuss in later lectures the source of his reluctance. Jonah therefore decides to run away. In fleeing the land of Israel, Jonah, according to some commentators, seemingly assumes that God will not further pursue prophetic revelation on this matter, at least not with him, as long as he no longer stands on sacred soil. Verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Jaffa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fear thereof, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him, and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Malachanir Dam, the captain asked, How can you be sleeping at this moment? We are about to die. Pray, pray to your God. Here, ladies and gentlemen, an interesting parallel emerges between the shofar, sounded as the penitential season begins, and the story of Jonah, which is read as the penitential season comes to a close. Maimonides famously described the shofar as a wake-up call to us, and it was Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin who once reflected that it is no coincidence that the High Holy Days are bookended by the shofar and the book of Jonah. We begin, in other words, with the blasts from the ram's horn, tekiah, truah, tekiah, and we end with the captain's cry, malachan nirdam, how can you be sleeping? For the light spiritual sleeper, Rabbi Zevin explained, 
the shofar perhaps suffices to wake him up. But for those who are true spiritual somnambulists, those that fail to capitalize on the opportunities thus far to truly repent, Jonah is intended to speak to them, to jolt them into wakefulness before it's too late. Malachanir Dam, how can you be sleeping, is asking us the same question as the shofar. Meanwhile, the sailors are still unable to figure out why this storm has come upon them. And so they decide to cast lots to engage in a form of divination. And again and again, Jonah is revealed as the culprit. Verse 7. And they said everyone to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who hath made the sea and the dry land. Note the precise ordering and phrases of the questions addressed to the prophet. The sailors, in truly seeking to understand who this man is, do not ask him first and foremost about his heritage, his values, his faith. Rather, they ask, Ma what's your job? From where are you traveling? From what country do you come? But Jonah, in this great moment of crisis, ignores these questions about professions and regions. For him, there is only one answer. Ivri anochi, he says, I am a Hebrew. And I, as a Hebrew, fear the Lord God of heaven, who has created the sea and the dry land. At this moment, when all was on the line, there was only one aspect of his identity that mattered. He was an heir to the heritage of Avraham Ha'ivri, Abraham the Hebrew, who discovered and worshipped God, the Lord, Hashem, who created the sea and the dry land. It is this that defines him. How did the sailors respond to Jonah's identification? Here we come to what I believe is the most overlooked and astounding verse in the entire book. At this point, hearing he was a Hebrew who served the Lord, the sailors reacted as follows. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. The clear implication is that the sailors knew from the very beginning, from the moment they set sail, that Jonah was fleeing from his God, for he had told them, so we are informed. But if that is the case, then why in the world were they wondering who was the cause of this storm? All of a sudden, we are informed that Jonah had explained from the very beginning why he was so eager to board the ship, because he was running away from God. In Hebrew, ki yadu, for they knew, shemei Hashem hu that he was fleeing from the Lord. Ki for he had already told them. But if they knew that, why were they so perplexed initially? When the storm came upon them, why were they mystified as to the cause of the tempest and why, when the lot fell on Jonah, did they suddenly need to know his biography? In order to emphasize how seemingly strange this is, let me offer an example. Suppose you were a taxi driver and someone jumped in the back seat of your car clutching large sacks of cash, saying, take me to the border. As you drive, you are suddenly surrounded by police cars and FBI helicopters. Would you say, hmm, let's draw lots to see which of us is responsible for the presence of law enforcement. No, it would be obvious that the fugitive is at fault for the situation. So if Jonah told his fellow passengers originally, from the very beginning, that he was fleeing from his God, why did they all seek to understand who was responsible for the storm? In considering this puzzling passage, we should observe again that Jonah does not answer all of the sailors' questions about his identity. The only fact he supplies is, I am a Hebrew, and that is evidently enough. In his own analysis of the book's first chapter, 
Rabbi Yol ben Nun notes that in the ancient Near East, most people believed in territorial divinities, local gods who exercised tyrannical rule over a country's inhabitants, but were powerless beyond its borders. As far as the gods were concerned, an area that was not part of any particular realm was a no-man's land, a place where one could do whatever he wanted. In the Bible, by contrast, the god of the Hebrews is a god whose power is everywhere. That, Rabbi Nun argues, is why when Moses informs the Egyptian pharaoh that the god of Israel has demanded the release of his people, and Pharaoh parries by claiming that the deity of a non-Egyptian land is of no relevance to him, Moses proceeds to instruct him otherwise by saying, the God of the Hebrews has sent us, meaning, this is a God whose writ is not contained by borders. A hint to Moses' meaning may lie in the very term Hebrew, which derives from the verb la'avor, to cross over. Abraham is the first to be called Hebrew Ivri because he crossed over to the land of Canaan. Abraham, as we have discussed in our studies of Genesis, crossed over because the God who addressed him in Mesopotamia assured Abraham that he, God, would be with him at the other end of his journey. This, clearly, is a God who was not attached to one country because he existed long before countries, a God who rules the universe because he created the universe. The name Ivri Hebrew thus connotes one who, believing in this God, asserts that no place on earth is devoid of his presence and providence. We are now able to explain what is occurring in the first chapter of Jonah. It would seem, Rabbi Ben Nun reflects, that Jonah told his fellow passengers from the start that he was seeking to flee from his God. If this did not disturb them, it was because they were sailing into international waters, where, from their perspective, the territorial gods had no power. Thus, when the storm hits, each cries out to his own God, perhaps in the vain hope that the various deities that they sought to summon might get together and mount some sort of United Nations international rescue operation, or, if you will, a United Deities rescue mission. That fails because none of these deities exist. Thus, when the lot falls on Jonah and they demand to know who he really is, and he tells them, I am a Hebrew, meaning I am one who believes in a God who is everywhere. Then, stunned and awed, the men finally grasp the true gravity of their situation. They say to him, essentially, we knew that you were running away from your God, but we did not know that this God created the sea and the dry land. We had no idea that this God's power pertained everywhere. This is information we could have used yesterday when we gave you passage as a fugitive. The rest of the story, starting with their casting Jonah into the sea, follows in logical progression. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we return to what the rabbis may have had in mind in choosing the book of Jonah as the final scriptural reading on Yom Kippur. As I suggested in an article in Mosaic, Jonah is read as the sun is beginning to set and worshippers are a few scant hours away from returning to their regular lives, where God's presence is not so easily apprehended as it is in the synagogue on the year's most sacred day. They are proceeding to re-engage the mundane, where every temptation exists to gerrymander the divine out of one's daily existence. And it is here in Jonah where the essence of Jewish identity and of the Abrahamic worldview is so succinctly and powerfully summarized. Ivri Anochi, I am a Hebrew. God is to be found anywhere, at any time. The very name Hebrew thus proclaims a notion that changed the world far beyond the Hebrews themselves. Thus again, John Adams, quote, In spite of Bolingbroke and Voltaire, I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize men than any other nation. If I were an atheist and believed in blind eternal fate, I should still believe that fate had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. If I were an atheist of the other sect, who believe or pretend to believe that all is ordered by chance, I should believe that chance had ordered the Jews to preserve and propagate to all mankind the doctrine of a supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty sovereign of the universe which I believe to be the great essential principle of all morality and consequently of all civilization, end quote. 
It is the lesson of the Hebrews that is taught by the first chapter of the book of Jonah. And its message to all who hear it on Yom Kippur is that we must live our lives accordingly. We are called as Jews to not only call ourselves Jews, but also to say proudly, Ivri Anochi, I am a Hebrew, in full knowledge of all that this name proclaimed to the world, in full knowledge of how the universal idea behind this name changed the world, and in full knowledge of how profound a role this name must play in our own lives. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together next week, wishing you a Shabbat Shalom and signing off.